Bienvenue à la Cycling Tips Podcast. Shoddy? En français, s'il vous plaît. Nah, not at all. I might live in France. Doesn't mean I speak French very well. And it also, uh, as we found out last week, I do do some good noises, though, don't I? <laughs> you do some excellent noises. Welcome back to the Cyclotist Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Tuesday, February 15th. We've got an excellent show for you today and a severely above average group of podcasters <laughs> to, to make it. Abby, as an above average podcaster, how are you this morning? Yep. Cool, cool. Shadi, en français, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hack back to last week. This inside joke brought to you by last week's episode, which if you missed, that's sad for you. Uh, but basically, Jody's mic wasn't working, so we replaced him with all sorts of musical instruments <laughs> throughout the first couple minutes of the show. Welcome, Shoddy. Ronan, how are you today? I'm good. I'm slightly confused now because you always start by saying we've got an excellent episode, but we haven't made it yet. So how do you know it's going to be excellent? <laughs> Uh, because we strive for excellence, right? Okay. That's, uh, not, not only do we strive for excellence, we achieve excellence on the reg. It is always excellent. Plus I can see the run sheet. I can see the run sheet and there's interesting things on it. So, you know, if the run sheet looked really dire, I might start the podcast differently. I might be like, warning, if it's time for a nap, maybe this is your moment. But today we have a lot to talk about. We've got more Bernal updates. Great Bernal updates. We've got some more, some more Chris Froome opinions. We always love a good Chris Froome opinion. Uh, some drone rules and regulations. It's not really in our normal wheelhouse, but um, we're going to get into it today because it is, well, it's relevant to bike racing, I think. We're going to do a bit about the Tour of Oman, Tour de France wild cards, and special, special thing today. We have a chat with Velo Club member, we found this out quite recently. Velo Club member, Cadell Evans, <laughs> who, who reached out to Matt Deneef and actually I think Matt Deneef reached out to him and they had a great chat about all sorts of things. So we're going to drop that in at the end of the episode. Cadell Evans, of course, 2011 Tour de France champion and Velo Club member. I don't know which, uh, which is more important or what's the word I'm looking for? Which has... More clout would be the word in English, I think. <laughs> I wonder, will, I wonder will, going forward, will, will people stop referring to him as the first Australian winner of the Tour de France and start referring to him as the first Velo Club winner of the Tour de France? I think we probably should. I, I think, well, is he the first Velo Club winner of the Tour I, de France? I'm assuming and probably shouldn't assume. Pro, I mean, probably. Probably he, I, I think so. There, there are other pros who are Velo Club members. Every once in a while, like the names pop through in my little like you know weekly chart of people that have signed up and i'm like oh hi good to see you reading the website there professional cyclist he's anyway he's come to door one because he has he's done some stuff with us in the past i won't be surprised if he's another if, grand tour winner who's a vc member i don't know if he's a paid up member we might have given him a free one yeah <laughs> I, I i appreciate cadell because cadell didn't come in asking for freebies he just went and signed up that was great. Anyway, let's get, let's get into the show. Today. I mean, how much is a Velo Club membership? It's like really, you're not. We're not asking for. We're it's not like asking for. It's like seventy five cents a week. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's it's cheap. Three ninety nine a month, I think. Super US, worth it. It's one so, coffee a month. One coffee a month, and you get one really fancy <laughs> coffee a month. <laughs> That's it. If you're not already a Bella Club member, be like Cadell Evans. Join us. Now let's make a podcast. All right. I want to kick off with the best news of the last week, I think. Uh, Abby, Egan Bernal, we saw him walking, right? Yeah, we've been keeping everyone posted on Egan Bernal and his progress. And pretty quickly after he was released from the hospital, after we made last week's episode, he posted an Instagram video of himself taking his first steps walking. And it's, it's pretty wild. Cause he's, he had surgery also on his leg and, um, he's got no leg brace or anything on just, just a neck and back stabilizer. And, and he's walking. It's great. I'm sure he is ahead of the timeline that his doctors, well, we, we know that his doctors were concerned about walking ever for a little while. Thankfully, those concerns uh, are now behind us, but I'm sure he's ahead of ahead of schedule, so to speak, which which isn't that unusual for for athletes of this level. I mean, you know, the part of the reason why Egan Bernal is so good at bikes is because he recovers very well day to day in a Grand Tour. Turns out those recovery mechanisms are pretty good when you hurt yourself as well. I, I remember hearing a story about uh, post Taylor Finney's super nasty crash uh, It was five, six years ago now. Um, where he did some similar damage to his leg, broke a femur and things like that. And his doctors were absolutely astounded at the rate at which he was recovering. And yeah, like I said, being an athlete, uh, particularly at that level, good for more than just winning stage races. We love to see it. I feel like you're twisting the knife a little bit here with Ronan. We were speaking (laughs) just before we started this podcast that if you don't know, Ronan... uh, Unfortunately, ruined himself while out riding. He's got a big old, got a big old cage around his leg, broken bones. And uh, he's saying, I'm not recovering as quickly as I had hoped. So Kaylee's clearly just twisting the knife, aren't you, mate? I, th- I think part of it as well is just a mentality thing because I was, I had my first plan checkup last week and I was severely disappointed that you can see in the x-ray my leg is still clearly broken. And I was like, yeah, this should be fixed by now. But the doctors, <laughs> the doctors were massively encouraged by how much it has recovered already. So it, it, for me, like everything, it's a race. But for the doctors, they were... I'm not behind in any way, I should just say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm on course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just hope we keep getting these updates from Bernil from his home because I want to see if he's got more massive doors because that's one big door <laughs> behind him, isn't it? It's a huge door. He has, yeah. Probably multiple huge doors, I would have to say. Uh, We'll keep an eye on that. We'll keep you updated. Again, that's just fantastic news that he is already up and walking and points to, well, we can hope, we can hope, a complete recovery at some point here. Speaking of complete recoveries, sort of, (laughs) Chris Froome. Chris Froome has weighed in. It's not really, do we qualify? I would say... I would say we could qualify him as a complete recovery, even if he's missing like the 3% that he used to have to be a world beater. That's a pretty damn impressive recovery for him. But anyway, he has opinions. And one of the things I've actually really appreciated about Chris Froome in in recent years is his opinions. Because for a while he was, uh, well, I'm sure he had them, but he didn't really share them with us all that much. And 
as of late, he has had no issue whatsoever sharing his opinions with us. Abby, what are Chris Froome's opinions on Tom bikes, gravel, cobbles, all sorts of things? Yeah, it was, I found it very interesting that uh, in the wake of our debates in the last couple of weeks about gravel in road races and time trial bikes that Chris Froome weighed in on both of these. I don't think that it had anything to do with our podcast. I don't think he listens to the cycling tips podcast. Shame on him. I just assume that they all do. (laughs) I hope they don't. I really hope they don't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But he, he did in his, one of his uh, Instagram, in one of his YouTube videos, which are quite well produced, actually, if you ask me, um, he weighed in on the conversation around gravel and time trial bikes. He said what I think we could all assume that he would say in terms of a general classification rider with the amount of preparation the both him and the team go into the races with to have something like a gravel section or cobble section take you out of the race. It's a bummer for lack of a better word. I mean, basically Um, saying he's saying he doesn't like these things in bike races. Well, he didn't actually come out and say that he doesn't like gravel and cobbles in bike races. His more definitive opinion was on time trial bikes that time trial bikes are super dangerous and he found it ironic that the uci has been introducing things to make the sport safer i'm using finger quotes you can't see them but like the puppy paws ban and and those types of bands but something like time trial bikes that they haven't really looked at i mean ronan touched a little bit on the restrictions they have put on time trial bikes, none of which have to do with rider safety. But he said he's a fan of time trialing, but would it be a good idea to have all time trials be on road bikes where then you would have this, you would have the uh, equipment uh, discrepancy kind of taken out of the equation and it would just be a lot safer. Plus if you're training for time trials, it's super unsafe. I mean, racing on a, racing a time trial is one thing. And even in that sense, we see a lot of really bad crashes, but it's actually the training for a time trial where you can't simulate racing an hour long time trial on the road because of standard road hazards. And when people go out and try to do that, that that's, that's what's super dangerous. So I mean, it was an interesting video. So yeah, so so making a, an argument for basically Merck style TTs, which is which is obviously just riding a, I don't know how it got that name actually, but basically riding a bike, you know, that Eddie Merckx could have conceivably ridden <laughs> back in the day. It, there was there's a bunch of rules around the hour record, similar rules around the hour record. Now those were more stringent. They were you know they needed box section rims and 32 spokes and things like that. I don't think people are asking for that. I think it's basically just saying, can we just not have aero bars? <laughs> can, we, can we just make everybody ride drop bars so you can see where you're going and things like that? It's an interesting idea. Um, in collegiate racing here in the United States, they actually they did that a couple years after I graduated. And I wish that it had been that way when I was racing because, I mean, I just remember, one, we're all poor college kids, right? I had like $75 to my name. You're trying to put a time trial bike together probably not very safe because you're like scrounging parts bins and using Coke shims to get your air bars on and all kinds of sketchy stuff. It would have been good to just be able to ride my road bike when I was back when I was a collegiate racer. And the purpose behind that was essentially 
well, it was it was leveling the playing field because some teams would show up at collegiate nationals with you know five matching awesome time trial bikes, and some teams would show up with the polar opposite of that, you know, a bunch of road bikes with clip-ons, and and that 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 is just so far from a level playing field that that you know in that particular racing space it made a lot of sense to try to remove essentially like the 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 wealth gap from the racing now that's less of an issue obviously in professional racing but not not an issue in professional racing i mean we've seen particularly on the women's side we've seen stuff like that happen before and i think that you can kind of like look at the trickle down which is okay yeah at the world tour level they all have access to at least pretty good equipment even if there are differences between the top teams and 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 other teams they're all at least on a halfway decent time trial bike but you don't, you don't have to go too far down the chain there to end up with pretty big discrepancies in technology so even beyond the safety argument i think that there's some other arguments around essentially like i said leveling the playing field that mercs tt's kind of make a lot of sense I and mean, we've seen it for example sometimes when teams have to travel to the middle east or something like that they'll just do a mercs time a mercs time trial so that they don't have to bring tt bikes over to some other continent i i wouldn't surprise me if we maybe see a bit more of that but i don't really count on the uci making a whole lot of moves here i think in the women's tour of california there was a team time trial one year that was done merc style because the teams were like we aren't gonna fly from europe with two bikes and so the race was like cool we'll just do t road bikes in the team time trial yeah and like i said that's just that's completely ignoring the safety argument which is the argument that Froome is actually making mm -hmm. uh, and i think between those two arguments you can actually you know they combine into uh, not a totally convincing <laughs> single argument to get rid of time trial bikes entirely but at least something worth thinking about and talking about uh, well i'm just going to start by saying first of all i'm vehemently opposed to any removal of aero bars or time trial bikes <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> to to make a serious comment, I, I do think though the idea that this might somehow level the playing field in world tour racing is a bit far fetched. I think, you know, what's likely to happen, in, in my opinion, if we remove time drop bikes from world tour races, is that the main benefiter benefiters will be the bike brands who can you know reintroduce the ultra aero road bike. Uh, they can probably quite happily get rid of a time drop bike, reintroduce an ultra aero road bike. And then, you know, the teams with the top equipment would still have a noticeable advantage over the, you know, the, this, the smaller teams with, you know, perhaps just one bike model to choose from, from their supplier. Uh, so I, I don't think it really, uh, levels the playing field in terms of competition, but in terms of safety, yeah, you know, you can't really argue that having your brakes within reach are, is probably a good thing. Uh, now use on the call here, you probably can see my bike here behind me which is a road bike with time trial handlebars that's my everesting bike uh so i'm gonna i'm gonna lay claim to actually coming up with this idea it's a it's a road giant tcr with flat handlebars is you know is that what we're talking about or are we talking about it has to be drop handlebars in which case can we start using aero drop handlebars or you know it's i, I think when you try to put the genie back into the bottle or you try to you know reverse time uh you end up in a situation where you know it's very very difficult to decide well what is okay and what isn't and uci have been caught that way before um you know i think what uci rules should be doing is yes focusing on priority but 
finding ways to make racing more exciting rather than finding ways to make it more traditional. I like what uh, Ronan said there about putting the genie back in the bottle because we've got riders now who specialise in multiple different things and time trialing is just one of them things. And as I think if they did away with time trial bikes, just add normal road bikes, I don't think it would make a huge amount of difference because these guys who... Let's just say I've hung out with a couple of teams recently, Total Energies, when they were getting fitted for time trial bikes. And the right, some of the riders there were laughing that they were spending more time fitting for the new time trial bike than they've actually rode it for the previous year. They were like, well, I've done like a 10-minute time trial. What's the point? So there's, there's riders out there who actually, yeah, don't give a damn about time trial bikes and just ride it because... They have to, and then probably they might go out training on it once in a blue moon. In this instance, it looked like they didn't go out training at all. They just sat at home on the rollers for ten minutes. Um, and then there's going to be the guys who, yeah, do put the effort in, put the track time in, um, and know how to ride these things and do it exactly how it's supposed to be done and show everybody how it's supposed to be done. And I think, yeah, getting rid of them guys and just sticking them on. Road bikes ain't going to make an ounce of difference. They're still going to know how to get aero and all this. Like this. And that's from the safety side of things as well. I don't think it's for the everyday folk, for the, for the yeah, collegiate racing, for the British time trial scenes, for instance. I don't think it's the UCI's um, remit to make that side of the sport safe. It's that they, they, they make the professional cycling safer. It's... I suppose the 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 country's governing bodies, the the, the yeah, the uh, was it the uh, British Cycling Time Trials Body. I can't remember what it's called now, but that's a separate to the British Cycling itself. It's their their job to make the rules that dictate how safe riding should be in that country on a time trial bike. For instance, they're they're making everybody ride with uh, lights now in the UK in time trials. I feel like if you tried to remove traditional time trial bikes from the UK time trial scene, you'd have a riot. Oh, a mini one, a mini with, one, yeah. I think, you, I think you'd end up with issues. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the, the leveling the playing field thing, that that's a concern for well below the world tour, right? Ronan, you're 100% correct in that. That's not really good. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. And and even if you tried to, the the wealthy teams and the teams that care about time trials would still spend the time and energy and, and money to figure out how to go faster on a road bike versus the rest of the teams that don't that don't care. Right. And and you could maybe even argue that the differences would be bigger, I think, with optimization on a road bike versus optimization on everybody's got a pretty similar time trial bike in a pretty similar time trial position. Right. Because there's, there's you know. The difference between a, a aero position on a regular road bike and a not aero position on a regu regular road bike is vast. So that's that sort of that that issue aside. The safety issue, I think, is probably the primary one. And Dave, you're you're right. Like the UCI, it's not the UCI's job to make sure that UK time trialing is safe. It is their job to make sure that professional time trials are safe. And we we dove into this extensively before, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But like some of the basic rule changes around where you can put your hands and where you can put your head seems like a better solution than, than getting rid of time trial bikes entirely. Just, I was going to make one point, but I'll come back to it in a second. 
Uh, your example of the Tour of California, and I know previously the Tour of Qatar and that as well, that teams had to ride road bikes. They were adapting those bikes quite significantly in terms of saddle position, handlebar drop, saddle angle, you know, wheels that they were using for those road bike time trial stages. So that that would still happen. But interestingly, you know, in speaking to some World Tour riders, there is quite a lot of, let's say, uh, dislike for the direction that some time trial specialists are going now. I know, uh, I'll not name any names, but I know of one writer in particular who was, you know, considered a time trial specialist and, uh, you know, potentially a world championship or world championship winning time trial writer who has sort of fallen by the wayside in recent years in terms of time trial performance. And he is completely disillusioned with the direction that some of the writers are taking in terms of, you know, exceptional marginal gains and and you know finding seconds here there and everywhere to improve their time trial performance and that is now less about the engine and more about the optimization uh, so i know that you know that from the discussions i've had with water writers that seems to be the bigger concern amongst some of them than the actual safety aspect of it yeah because the riders are so used to like nothing being safe that it's not even like I was talking to Tom's about a Trois de Bessege because it was like super dangerous that race. And he was like, Oh yeah, we knew it was beforehand. And you know, you just gotta just avoid the poles in the road. It's like, yeah. no, 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 that's not how it should be. That's not how it should. The races should just be safe. You shouldn't have the riders shouldn't have to worry about safety. That's the UCI's job. You just gotta don't hit a pole. Just, you know, just keep an eye out. Right around the pole. You'd be fine. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Right around the lorry parked in the middle of the turn as the whole peloton comes charging near the finish. Did you just say yeah. lorry? Shoot, I've been talking to Amy too much. Ay, 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 ay. So, so, so all this safety and time trial situation really comes to a head when we think about what the Secret Pro said in, I think it was his last article or the one before that, that he wasn't a big fan of Cobbles being Grand Tour races. But how about running a time trial over over the cobble section, he said. <laughs> yeah, do it up. Do it up. Let's combine these things. I, we haven't even gotten into the other opinions that Chris Froome had, which was that gravel and, and cobbles are bad. I think that we could, in 30 seconds, say that, no, that's dumb. Um, and proven <laughs> proven by the fact that uh, Payen, the, the, essentially, we're calling it the Spanish Strada Bianca. What's, what's Camino Blanco? What would be, yeah, that's, that's Spanish for white road, right? Uh, anyway, over the, over the weekend, uh, a new one day race in Spain over a bunch of gravel roads. And it was one gorgeous two really cool racing, even though we only got to watch the last 50 K or so Ronan, you put a, you, a quick gallery together for the website, another race that like the first time you watch it, you can tell there's something special about it. Kind of like when we first watched Strata, but Strata, a couple, what, 15 years ago now? Is it 15? Wow, getting old. 2007, I think. Uh, anyway, <laughs> when we first watched that, you could tell it was something different and something special. And the gravel's a big part of that. The white roads are a big part of that. And, and we're seeing that now in Spain. And I think that that is going to continue to be, to be sort of making its way into road racing. And I think that they did a good job in that yeah, it was on gravel and it was on loose surfaces, but it, it still felt like a road race, right? It doesn't feel like a gravel race. It's still, there's still groups of riders, it's still drafting. There's still, you know, all that other stuff. And uh, Lutsenko ended up winning. He's won a, a bunch of times on surfaces like that. So like we said in, in last week's episode, it's just another, it's another technical skill that, that riders need to work on. 
or avoid those races, I guess. But I think that that, that race plus Strata plus everything else is just immediate proof that um, removing that kind of stuff from professional road racing is, is a bad idea because it makes for, makes for good bike racing and that's the whole point. I think yeah, one of the big things about Strata and the new race in Spain now as well is that it's not, you know, for, for us watching bike races as, you know, long-time cycling fans, we understand the tactics and we understand the inter-team rivalries and we understand what's at stake. And also we can be, we can enjoy bike racing without it having to be actually exciting every moment of the race. But when you turned on that Spanish race yesterday, it was just... You know, it wasn't like a mountaintop finish where it's a you know a slog match and slow motion attacks, or it wasn't like a bunch sprint where you're you know or Milan San Remo where you have to wait seven hours for five minutes of exciting excitement. It was exciting from the second we turned it on, and you know that that's what I remember from watching the first Strata Bianchi. I think September October two thousand seven, and then they moved the date immediately to March two thousand eight. So we only had to wait a couple of months for it to come back, but in those few months. It was like night and day from being a sort of race that, you know, I'm assuming the World Tour teams looked at with sort of, you know, huge question marks over it to being a race that you just had to go to within three or four months. And I think it will be the same case for this new Spanish race this time next year. We'll have a lot more World Tour teams at it. We'll have riders specifically aiming for Strada Bianchi will turn up to to the new race in Spain. And yeah, I think it's a... it was, you know, it, as I said in the piece yesterday, it was sort of irrelevant who won or it was second second fiddle at, at best. What was more entertaining was just the action and, and the, the watch itself. What we've got to remember is that road cycling, you know, all cycling, I suppose, it's, um, it's a thing that's evolved over time. If cycling had stayed the same as it had when the first tour started, we'd still be watching a, a grand tour of seven stages over well, however long it took them to get round. So, yeah, people saying that, well, yeah, gravel's not welcome in uh, the road side of things, the Strada and this new one in Spain isn't classed as classic road cycling. It's it's by the by because cycling's developing all the time and stuff like this, coming into the sport, finding new races like this just reinvigorates it, changes it. Yeah, otherwise, like I say, would be stuck with a grand tour of seven stages. Or a- well, Lachlan Martin would probably be delighted because he'd have won like 10 Tour de France by now. <laughs> 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 Let's move on. Let's move on from Chris Froome's opinions as much as we like dissecting them. Uh, he's sort of like halfway correct in one of them. I think we, agree, we halfway agree with one of them and vehemently disagree with the rest. <laughs> Oh, to, to be fair, though, he wasn't like he didn't say, I don't think it should that gravel True. or cobble should be. He just said, as a GC rider, his opinions are probably skewed. Right. Which is valid. True. We, we talked yeah. about that last week. Yeah. If, if you if you spent all year preparing for the Tour de France and then lost it because you got a flat on a gravel section, you'd be annoyed. Which oh, is, which remember is, when uh, Richie Port got a flat in the, on the gravel of the climb when he was sitting third on GC? And it was like 4K to go. I do remember that. Oh that my God, that was, was, that, up on that was a moment. Was that up on Glare outside Honesty? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a cool road up there. Anyway, let's move on. We've got some, some sort of quick hit news here. And then I want to talk, I really want to talk relegation, uh, which is not something that we've previously talked about in professional cycling, but anybody familiar with, for example, football, uh, football in the UK 
uh, or in England, is, is going to be familiar with that. We'll get to that in a second. But first, Abby, Tour de la Provence, we had a couple Ghana wins. What else happened down there? Yeah, Tour, Tour de la Provence, uh, the, the news around racing, both last week and this week, does kind of play into the conversation about relegation that we'll have in a minute. Tour de la Provence was won by Nairo Quintana. He won on the final stage. Stage three was a mountaintop. Philippe Agana was the winner of the prologue and wore the leader's jersey up until the final stage when he was disqualified for an illegal bike change. And Viviani won the sprint on stage two. So a good race for the Ineos Grenadiers, but a better race for KS Amsic, who won the overall. So, so the, the, the rule there is that you can't take a bike from the roadside unless it's been uh, specifically allowed. So like in, a, in, a, in some uphill time trials, for example, they will allow that on a particular stage. But otherwise, you have to take it from the team car. And Ghana took it from the roadside. So it was a planned bike change. And you can't do that. So you get disqualified. It's pretty, um, it's written right there in the rules. So I don't really know how they missed that one. But uh, unfortunate for Ghana, for sure. Elsewhere in the world, Alexander Kristoff won the Classica de Almeria, the one day. And it was also announced that his team, Wanti, Goubert, Inner Marche, whatever it's called, uh, signed <laughs> Domenico Pazzavivo. Intermarche Wanti Gobert Matilio. Yeah, there you go. Sorry. There we go. It's a lot of names. We just come up with, what's, what's the acronym there? I-W-G-M. Ilgum. 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 Yeah, they Team signed Pazzavivo. <laughs> <laughs> um, a late entry to the team. Obviously, it's February. 39 years old, Pazzavivo. Still, still crushing it. Indeed. He was on Quebec's team, so he was one of those riders that was... Let a, le, left out to dry when that team folded. Elsewhere in the world, at the Tour of Roman, we had multiple stage wins and one kind of hilly-ish stage with Gaviria winning stage one uh, and stage six, Mark Cavendish taking stage two, leading the points classification, and then after stage five, getting point, nine points deducted and a 300 Frank fine for pushing off a race vehicle. He lost his points jersey to Jan Hurt, who won stage four and the overall. Faustum is not a won the final stage. There's so much wanty. Sorry, Iwagumum. Iwagum. There's so much uh, wanty and uh, like small teams in Archaea. And I'm just, I'm scrolling down through the, the main page in Pro Cycling Stats right now. There's so many of these teams right now, which is, again, going to get into our relegation battle discussion in a second. Yes, also because Uno X's Anton uh, Charmig won stage three. So Uno X also had a win after having an incredible week last week at the Saudi tour. Right. There's multiple of these small teams, two of them vying for world tour licenses in Arkea and Uno X, and a couple of them with world tour licenses that are hovering dangerously close to this relegation zone. Um, so, Kaylee, do you want to explain the relegation zone? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think we've talked about this in the podcast yet, but this is a big deal for this year. This is a very big deal for this year. In fact, you are seeing the result of this rule change in these early season races, it's, it's the reason why these smaller teams are coming out swinging. I absolutely guarantee you that there were discussions had in November between directors and riders that were basically saying, listen, we need a pile of UCI points ASAP. 
like as early as possible. And if we don't, then we're in trouble. So the context around this. Anybody who's familiar with, for example, let's just use the Premier League uh, soccer football in England. The bottom three teams in the Premier League get kicked out of the Premier League every year. And they go into the championship, which is like the, the league book. People who watch Ted Lasso should know what that means. Anybody who knows Ted Lasso. Actually, Ted Lasso has probably informed vast swaths of Americans who didn't previously know what this, this was, uh, how this works. But anyway, three teams go down. Three teams come up from the championship. It's just this constant cycle. And, and it's, it's a huge deal from a financial perspective because you get paid out a bunch more if you're in the Premier League, basically. Um, now, in American sports, the NFL for example, completely different model. It's a closed system. And if you're in the NFL, you have zero danger of ever not being in the NFL, basically, unless your team folds, something like that. There's also lots of rules in that closed system around like salary caps and things like that and draft picks. It's, it's, a, it's a completely different system. Draft picks, for example, according to my football watching friends, is a big part of the reason why the Cincinnati Bengals were in the Super Bowl over the weekend after being god awful for like 20 years because basically they got a bunch of there's a team (laughs) called the bangles the the bengals like like bengal tiger all right i thought you said bangles is in like the old (laughs) 80s band (laughs) nope (laughs) but they've been about as relevant to football as the cincinnati bangles would have been uh for a very long time until you know they got a bunch of early draft picks because they were so bad and they got a bunch. They got a really good quarterback, for example, and they end up working their way into the Super Bowl. So that that two very different systems. One, you have to be stay good in order to stay in the league. The other, a franchise model. Uh, the other way to kind of think about the NFL model is like the teams are not actually really competing with each other commercially. They're competing with other sports and with other entertainment and with other move with movies and, and music, whatever else for, for for commercial success, right? Because they're all in this system together and they, they, they rise and they fall together versus a relegation system where they don't, where they, they, they're all on their own. And potentially you could be out of the, the top league uh, at any year, race, really. So, which brings me to cycling. For the first time, uh, I believe for at least first time in the World Tour era, for sure, uh, the bottom, basically 18 teams at the end of this year, will be given world tour licenses for the next three-year period going forward. And those, those top 18 teams are going to be determined by UCI points. And so that is why all these smaller teams, the kind of like edge teams, the relegation battle teams, are trying to get as many UCI points as they possibly can early in the season here when, let's be honest, it's probably easier to get UCI points at these races than it is at something like the Tour de France. Uh, the UCI's point system is is not great uh, in that it, it, it sort of over-rewards some smaller races uh, versus some of the larger ones. So they're trying to take advantage of this. They're trying to get a bunch of points so that they can get into the top 18 and hopefully stay there. Uh, just so, just to sort of put the current teams in in context. So, I believe this was at as of end of last season. Quickstep Alpha Vinyl, uh, top of the UCI rankings with twenty five thousand four hundred 
17 points, I think it is. Um, followed by Yumbo Visma, Ineos, UAE, Bahrain. And then you get down into like 15th, 16th, 17th, 8th, 18th. That's Movistar, Israel Premier Tech, Intermarche, Wanty Gobert, Arkea Samsic. At, at, at the last time I did the, the numbers, was number 18. Beneath that line, so currently not going to get world tour licenses for, for the next three years, Kofidis, Lotto Sudol, Total Energy, Uno X, BB Hotels, which is sort of like 19 through 23 there. But it, it adds a whole interesting dynamic to this season because there's, there's at least half a dozen teams, if not more, that could find themselves in this, this quote-unquote relegation battle, something that, again, anybody who follows the Premier League or similar is going to be, going to be very familiar with. It's a, it's a, it kind of provides a storyline throughout the season to keep an eye on not just the teams at the top, but also the teams at the bottom. And we're, like we said, we're, we're already seeing the, the outcome, not the outcome, the results of this, this change. It's going to change racing throughout the entire year. And we've we've already seen some big changes in the ranking in the beginning of the year. And obviously it's with the three grand tours still to come and a lot of the world tour racing, which is points heavy still to come. The rankings that we're seeing right now are definitely not what we're going to have in the end. But if you look at the rankings updated over the weekend, Arkea Samsic sits second in the rankings as a pro team, not even a world tour team. And there's like mm, a couple world tour teams, Team Bike Exchange, EF, Astana, AG2R, Bahrain, they're all, you know, just getting lower and lower. And as I said, these early season races are not going to make that big of a difference when it comes to the the later world tour races. But like I talked about last week with the changing dynamic of the racing, this is a really interesting thing to see because these races are there. It's not like there aren't big names showing up to these early season races. There still are. And, uh, I mean, Ineos in particular has had some real bad luck at the <laughs> early season races. Um, and there's some other world tour teams that have, have kind of had some bad luck, but, but yeah, it's a super interesting thing to keep an eye on. And I mean, not a huge fan of pro cycling stats, but they do have the UCI world team ranking up there on the site that they update, like after every week, almost, I think that's. Um, an interesting thing to keep a, keep an eye on. I want to be behind this idea. I really want to like the idea of, like say, a, a, a soccer type of system where teams go up, teams go down. But realistically, there's a lot of flaws to it because not every race has the right amount of points up for grabs and not every team can ride the same amount of races because it, it, you, there's wildcard invites to the Grand Tours, there's only so many teams allowed at so many races. So you get some of these smaller teams on smaller budgets might be outperforming other teams with bigger budgets, but when they do get to the races, but it's a case of can they get to the races? So there's too many factors involved. It's not like football where each team plays the same amount of matches throughout the year as every other team and get, gets the points that way. It needs to be a little bit clearer. It needs to be a little bit less um, 
I want to say muddled, but just it to be a, a bit more of a level playing field for everybody. Because yeah, I'd love to see some of the um, some of the world tour teams that just seem to float about and not really do much at races and not really shine, get relegated, and some of these smaller teams who really do go out and put on a good show to to move up. I mean, that would just be nice to see the development of some teams that have been putting the groundwork in for a long time, but haven't been able to get to where they would like to because of the, um, well, lack of funds or what would be uh, available to them. You're totally right. And it's also like an un, kind of an unfair system with this particular round of um, the relegation, because like you said, I mean, the ASO announced last week that Albison Phoenix, Arkea Samsic, Total Energies, and B&B Hotels KTM are going to participate in the Tour de France. Of course, Alpecin Phoenix and Arkea Samsic have automatic invites because they're the top two pro teams. But Uno X was really, really hoping for that bid. And Team Total Direct Energies or Total Energies and B&B Hotels got those two wildcard spots, which means that they have an opportunity to get way more points than Uno X does. And Uno X is a team that is, has been very vocal about their desire to be in the world tour. Have they, have they tried being more French? Cause I mean, they <laughs> just be a little bit more French and then maybe. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a really difficult one for me at the moment. I think, you know, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Kaylee or Abby, but my understanding of the draft system is that it is supposed to, you know, share the best players amongst all the teams so that you have a level playing field and you do have, you know, you don't have one dominant team all the time. Well, that that combined with salary caps, yeah, that that combined with salary caps, basically, that is the theory anyway. And I'll, you know, that's with the caveat that I've watched a grand total now of ten minutes of the Super Bowl, uh, and that is the only NFL I've ever seen in my life. Uh, but you know, when you look at the football model, the reason it works is because, or part of the reason it works is because you don't just have the Premier League and the the Championship, but you have, you know. Division one, two, three, and conference, and then regional leagues below that, where teams are always striving to get promoted into the next division above them, to get the rights, the TV rights, the the prize money, everything that comes with that, and then they can build themselves up to bigger and bigger teams. What do we have in cycling? Is you know you don't have the rights, but I'm not even going to open that kind of worms. What what we have is a sort of unsecure environment for teams at the best of times where sponsors can leave at any time and you know there there is no right answer if you cap it to just you know the the franchise model like we have an nfl 20 teams only in the world tour then you know those 20 teams might have security but you know below that we could have nothing and the on the flip side if we have promotion and relegation we've only really got world tour and pro continental or whatever it's called these days the chances, yeah, I, I don't believe we have promotion and relegation from continental level teams up to pro county. You know, that just doesn't happen. So, you know, it's sort of a, a yeah, it, it, it's trying to implement both styles as the way I see it and not really getting the benefit of either. Well, you, you touched on the major issue too, which is that the financial models are completely different, right? Which is if you make it to the Premier League from the championship, you're, you're guaranteed millions Millions and millions, and mil- like hundred something million, probably plus. You're also guaranteed millions if you get relegated as like a, a parachute payment. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the, the whole system is, is 
like the way that those teams are funded is completely different. And so that there is a there is you can directly tie making it to the top leagues with a huge windfall financially. In cycling, you you can kind of do that because having a world tour license probably makes you more likely to be able to pull in big sponsors because you have guaranteed access to the tour fronts. But that is it, it's a step removed, right? Just because you have guaranteed access to the Tour de France does not guarantee that you, you will actually get bigger sponsors. It just kind of makes it more likely. And so that's kind of the disconnect here. And that's, if you listen to, to folks like Jonathan Vodders, for example, he does not like a promotion relegation system. Not all that surprising, really. Uh, but that's, that's basically his primary argument against it is that, you know, what is, what is there to protect or what is there to, to inspire teams to even want to make this jump up, particularly if you're a team like some of these smaller French teams where it seems like you're pretty much guaranteed entry to the Tour de France anyway. And we've seen teams like Arkea Samsic kind of make the strategic decision previously to stay out of the World Tour because it just costs them more money. They just have to go to more races, but they don't really see the benefit because they tend to get invites to the Tour regardless. So the whole system does not work in concert like it does on... Well, for example, Premier League uh, or any of the other European soccer leagues, and that that's that's a real issue. Like, uh, they're they're you're you're right, Ronan, that they're sort of like they're they're pulling bits of both of these systems and and not really gaining the full benefit of either of them at the same time. Albuson Phoenix Phoenix also has been like pretty clear that they don't want to be World Tour. They like being able to turn down races and pick and choose which races they go to and. And Vanderpool likes that system as well. So it's, it seems like a way, a, a not, it's not why they're doing this, obviously, but it is a way to force Albus and Phoenix into the world tour because they, at the moment, would be more than happy to just sit half of the top of the pro team rankings and take all of those wild, what used to be wild card invitations that the pro team, the top pro team gets to the world tour racing scene. Maybe it's a maybe it's a, a as an opportunity there for the whole wildcard system to be uh, reinvigorated. Maybe maybe this is a time when we do go down to seven riders at Grand Tours, so you can invite invite three more teams uh, per Grand Tour, smaller teams, more teams there, and then not allow I suppose not allow ASO to choose who's attending. The, the race in the wildcard slot. That's but the in big fact, one. But <laughs> That's in fact, the big one. <laughs> but in fact, <laughs> instead have this point system sort of work its way throughout the, se- the season. So yeah, by, by, I don't know, say May, that's when you get the announcement of the uh, wild tour places for the Tour de France. So they've got a, they've got a month to prepare or get, get the stuff prepared for uh, the or Tour de France. even step back further. If if you if you if you made it so right now it's a three year it's a three year deal right so if you get promoted you get three years and if you get relegated out of the world tour you get three years down in the hinterlands what if it was every year and the three most recently relegated teams were still guaranteed entry to the next year's tour de France as an opportunity to sort of try to get themselves back up something like that where like I said the cycling system is based entirely around access to the Tour de France. That is what all of the financials of every single one of these teams hinge on. 
if you're up at that level, if, if you're sort of at that Tour de France level, right? That means that ASO picking the teams that go to Tour de France or specifically the wildcard teams, the pile of wildcard teams that get to go, falls afoul of all of the rest of the promotion relegation rules, which are built by the UCI and based off UCI points. UCI points don't get you into the tour at the moment, but they will potentially get you kicked out of the tour. And that's a problem, right? If, if this one system can get you, can, can make you lose access to the Tour de France, which is the, like I said, the, the sole basis of, of the financials of most of these teams. But doing well in the UCI point system does not guarantee you entry into the Tour de France. That is a fundamental disconnect that the sport needs to figure out. And that comes back to the, the issue that really came to head, I think it was 2008, where you know the ASO has so much power and owns the Tour de France. And I'm sure the UCI would just love to roll out everything we're talking about tomorrow. But so long as the ASO own the Tour de France, they're stuck in this hard place where they, they just can't have that influence on who rides and who doesn't ride the Tour. And then... You know, the whole sport has found itself in a situation where the most important event isn't part, isn't really part of the world rankings or, you know, the closest thing we have to a, a division for the top teams and a second division for the you know next level down. Uh, and that so, so long as that disconnect exists, which I can't unfortunately suggest a resolution to, I, I don't see us being able to get to that model where, as, as, what was it you said, okay, they were, you know, it's all... You didn't say all encompassing, but that sort of complete package where you have we have the promotion and relegation across multiple divisions, and you know the top teams go to the top races from the top division. And you know if you think about it in football again, not only do you have the Premier League, but then you have access to the Champions League, the European wide league for the top four teams from the Premier League each season. And you know so there's there's actually another level beyond that again, which is more further, money, yeah, more, <laughs> further reward. Yeah, so. Yeah, like huge amounts of money. <laughs> and I think, I mean, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's it's often said, but it can't be overstated how much impact that fact that the UCA runs the rankings, runs, you know, or, or organizes the the world tour, but the biggest race of the year is a completely separate entity owned by a different organization. So what what sort of stopping the UCI? I don't know the ins and outs of of it all of them just going right. No UCI points at the tour. Teams would still rock up because it's the biggest race of the year. It's there, The tour is there for publicity. It's there for getting eyeballs on the screen, eyeballs on your, your sponsor. You've got to wonder, yeah, what would happen if the UCI went, yeah, you're not a UCI race anymore. Would it change who rocks up? No, it wouldn't change anything. The, the UCI and ASO have, cut, have, you know, they've come to blows before on this kind of stuff, right? Um, and the ASO always wins because they're the source of all the team's money. And until something sort of pretty fundamentally changes on that front, that, that, that's, that won't, that will remain the same. You know, we've talked about, we've talked about like, if you go all the way back to those podcasts that, that we made the roadmap podcast a year plus ago, talked about some sort of like alternate uh, options on that front. And if, if you look at something like an F1 model or something like that, um, which, you know, F1 doesn't have promotion relegation either. It's a closed franchise system, but you, you could, you could kind of borrow bits of both, but the key would be that, that 
there's a single entity that kind of runs all these things. So you could you can make an argument. You can absolutely make an argument. And I'm not making this argument, just to be clear, but you can make an argument that ASO simply taking over the entire season would be the best possible thing for for pro cycling, right? Build a build an ASO league. They 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 own enough of the events for already. For men's pro cycling. For, for men's, men's pro, pro cycling. cycling. Yes, yes. <laughs> they you know they have the Tour de France. They've got Dauphiné. They've got Paris. They've got Roubaix. They've got they they have a whole season, and they could build their own promotion relegation system with teams that that guaranteed them access to the Tour de France that that allowed teams to go out and find sponsorship. You know, you, you can make a bunch of arguments around uh, like sharing of TV revenue, which is essentially how soccer works. The issue there is that the TV revenue from the Tour de France is is like one one hundredth of what it is for the Premier League. <laughs> so there's just not enough money to share uh, is kind of the issue there. But, you know, you, you can make an argument that like a single a single strong entity, commercial entity like that could end up being better for the sport as a whole, make the whole sport stronger. Uh, you can also make the exact opposite argument uh, and say that ASO should should, you know, just let the UCI run things like this and run promotion relegation and, and determine these things. So anyway, I think I think we've probably talked about this enough. This is going to come up again this year. Uh, we just kind of want to do a primer on it, really. And for those that, that are maybe not familiar with like a promotion relegation system, particularly our American listeners out there. Um, yeah, it's not it's not ideal. Uh, there's arguments for and against. And I think that we're, what we're going to see this season is, is, is really how it plays out and how it how the teams are incentivized to race differently, perhaps. And, and we're already starting to see that in these early season races. I wonder if Alpes and Phoenix will be like, Matthew, let's just not win. Let's not win a ton. <laughs> we want to end up 19th in the rankings. But, I, but I'm curious if anybody knows why the UCI decided to go to this model. I would have to go back to some of the conversations around this from ages ago. I do not recall. I, there was a lot of internal discussion around this. And again, there's a, there's a lot of the AIGCP, the, the, the teams organization that, that like Vodders was head of for a while. They were quite against some of these things. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of fundamentally comes back to this, this European system versus American system. That, that's tend to be, that, that tends to be how people frame it. Um, clearly, the NFL is a successful entity. Uh, also, clearly, European soccer is an even more successful entity. <laughs> so it, it, it's... Yeah, there are, there are good arguments on both sides, and I'm not exactly sure how they came to. Is the World Tour a successful entity? No, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, not it's not like even a little bit. It's the least successful this sport. Is a sort of sarcastic question to be honest with I I wouldn't say that cycling is the least least successful sport. In fact, I would say that it overperforms in a lot of ways because of the Tour de France. If you take the number of people that are interested in cycling all year round, and you compare that to other sports and their sort of year-round audience, ignoring the Tour de France. This is a tiny sport, right? It's an itty-bitty little sport, and there's not a lot of money in it. And, and you could probably compare us to other sports that do not have a lot of money. And then you add the Tour de France in, and it essentially allows the entire sport to overperform because think about all, all of your friends that are not really cyclists but still watch the Tour, or at least aware of the Tour de France, right? That is what, it's a big part of what brings the financial clout to the sport at all which is exactly why ASO 
whenever the UCI or anybody else tries to come in and say, why don't you give us your money? The ASO is like, actually, we're the reason why you have any money at all anyway. So no, you can't have our money. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental strength of the sport. And it's also its fundamental weakness and, and really hard to get around when you've got one, one thing, which from a broader perspective, from a, a you know, non-cycling superfan perspective, is the only thing that matters. Makes it complicated. All right. That's enough yammering on about UCI stuff. All right. We're going to cut it off right there. No nerd nerd nugget today because we kind of already talked about it in the time trail bikes earlier. Uh, Let's hear from Matt Deneef and Cadell Evans. It's been seven years now since Cadell Evans retired from pro racing and more than a decade since he became the first Australian to win the Tour de France. And while his pro racing days are behind him, Cadell certainly hasn't left cycling behind. He's a global ambassador for BMC and has been since he retired. He's still involved in the world tour race that bears his name. And of course, he still loves riding his bike. It also turns out that Cadell's a cycling tips reader and a paid up Velo Club member. We reached out to him to thank him and he offered us an interview, which of course we were delighted to do. In the following clips from that interview, you'll hear Cadell talking about his perspective on road racing today, his favorite modern riders, his time in the sport, and the riding that he's doing these days. If you want more from Cadell, be sure to check out the Where Are They Now article I've written about him for Cycling Tips. How closely do you follow the sport these days? I mean, you're talking about you following the tech and industry developments and stuff. What about the actual racing? Yeah, I follow it a little bit, but more so the the results, not so much the um, I don't sit down and all day watching races on TV and things. I, I never did. Um, I still don't. I don't watch much TV. That's the thing. <laughs> not, not because I don't like watching bike races. I just don't like spending so many hours not getting much done. Mm. Um, but yeah, I watch the final of the big races and things. And yeah, I watched a good good chunk of Roubaix or something. I can't resist and the worlds. I can't resist. Um, but um, actually, my partner Stefani, she watches nearly every stage of the Giro and things. And since we've been living together, I actually probably watch more bike races because she's watching them. She, she's a skier, but she, she watches she watches all the bike races. Are there any riders though that you watch or that you see that you you really like watching or that you think are particularly good for the sport or that yeah kind of resonate with oh, you in the way they sure. race? Yeah, I've so I've loved watching the rise of um, Van der Poel and Van Aert, and um, I don't know Van Aert well. I don't know him personally, but I love the way he races and the fact that he's all around. He's doing cyclocross and road. Same with Tom Peacock. I don't know. I've never met him personally. I don't know him, but you know, winning mountain bike, cyclocross, road. Oh, this is awesome. And the way the racing's changed, it's it's become so much more intense, and the the sacrifices, the dedications become even always more and more. And so. I, <clears throat> So I admire the riders that are there and the guys at the front and um, um, probably my favourite riders to watch. I was lucky enough to do a grand final a few years ago and meet uh, Rogla before he became mm. and got to know him. And I just have to say he was really a super nice guy, really interesting guy. His wife and my Stefani became good friends and his first son child was born just around the same time ours was. And and this, but really, um, oh, we had got a friendship going on. I leave him alone now because I think everyone probably wants his time. But um, <laughs> so I haven't heard from him for a while. But um, 
but he's between Rogla, Watt. I admire uh, Vanderpool, but I suppose I, I I really like his ride. My favorite riders are probably Watt and um, and Rogla right now. I suppose Ala Felipe as well. Just he's mm. um, love to race and be oh, there, yeah. and he's got the he's still got a bit of the he's 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 managed to be very versatile rider, especially when he was there with the yellow jersey in the tour. He's mm. got a bit of old school about him, but he's doing it in the in the cycling the the contemporary contemporary cycling now, which I really really like. When you talk about guys like Pidcock and um, Vanderpol and Van Art, you know these are guys that are obviously balancing a whole bunch of different disciplines at once. That, that, that wasn't really a thing in your day, was it? You obviously, it seemed like your career was like you did mountain bike and then you moved to road, and it was quite distinct. Do you think that, like, if you were racing now, would you have been inclined to try and do both? Do you think that's become a viable path? Or when I was racing, I did one year where I was doing both: World Cup mountain bike and pro on the road because I was doing mountain bike when I was under 23. And what I found, one, the mountain bike races were longer <clears throat> in the 90, late 90s, um, and the, road, the under 23 races were shorter, so the crossover wasn't, I found it easier. Then when I went to the pros, where the races were longer, you had to do, you had to be doing more Ks and things, which was actually taken away a little bit from your mountain bike as capabilities. And so when I see these guys now, the mountain bike races have become shorter. <laughs> the roads become more specific. Uh, everyone's preparation is so much better. Excuse me. Everyone, it used to be that you go to a race and, okay, 10, 20, 10%, 20%, 30%, 40% of the field had prepared well for that race and they were good. The two are 100%, yes, but often races. Now it seems like everyone on the start line of every race, but not just not just the big ones, but the, the second tier level races, everyone's there racing from the first kilometre to the last absolutely flat out. It would seem to me that the crossover is even more difficult now. Mm. And even done at the mountain bikes today, the position's even further different. So just to change to it, I still ride, when I do, do do the mountain bike races that I do now, I ride in a position like I rode in the 90s because as a road rider, I sit so far behind the bottom bracket <clears throat> that it's the only place I can produce power um on the flats and um i don't fit on them i don't fit on them now the mountain bikes the last years i can't even get that position anymore so i'm sort of like oh, hang on a second i'm gonna to have to change my position right mm. so the fact that they're doing so pidcock is doing so well in both uh walt is doing so well in both to me sort of amazes me actually so there's been a big trend uh, in the last few years uh, for world tour teams to sign road riders really young. Do you think if if that had been the case in your era that you might have been convinced to come over from mountain bike earlier than you did? I had the idea to go through to the Sydney Olympics mountain bike and I was 23 uh, in, in the year 2000 when the Olympics were here and then after that I was like, oh, let's see what happens. And that was 2001, the year after, and no longer being under 23, that I rode both road and mountain. And, and there was more of the internal goings on in the mountain bike team I was in and the fact that all these road teams wanted to have me. And then Mappe come to you and, would you like to um, join us and become a Grand Tour rider? You know, when you're 23 years old, sort of like, Second career in second career in cycling. Oh, this could be fantastic. Um, yeah. you know, Aldo Mappe at the time was like, yeah. um, well, they still are, <laughs> still are, but they're not around anymore. But um, yeah, it was funny. We had some inter internal um, friction in the mountain bike team. I was just like, I wasn't enjoying going to the races anymore. In the mountain bike race, I still enjoyed like riding and that. And then the, when I went and 
I was in between the races. I was racing with Kanda Seiko. And they're like, Canel, come here. Let's go in the breakaway. Here, left, right, there. Just follow Rebelin. You'll be fine. <laughs> until, you, until you blow up, yeah. <laughs> I just remember once or twice going to races and, and he was there. I said, just follow him. You'll be fine. Sure enough, he won. And I ran on day fifth or something. <laughs> and he's still racing these days. Uh, I read that he's going to retire soon. The end of this year, yeah. He, 50 years he was old. Not so, he was not so young when I first... <laughs> It's incredible, isn't it? Such longevity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so long, But don't be scared, Davide. There's great things other than racing your bike. In the <laughs> There's a lot of great things. Yep. Yep. Good call. We were talking earlier about how you, you follow the industry quite closely, developments, all that kind of stuff. What, what's exciting you at the moment in bike tech or the bike industry or the future of cycling tech, I guess? What's, what's got you excited? Yeah. The, uh, the whole gravel thing for me is probably the thing that excites me the most. Road cycling and Strava and Zwift, it's if you want to be better than yesterday, beat your buddy or whatever, that's great for that. But not everyone wants mm. to do that. And that's probably why I'm not on Zwift because if I go on Zwift, everyone wants to beat me. So it's not, kind of not really enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> it takes away the enjoyment a bit. Um, but um, that... Uh, Gravel, it's sort of more mellow. It's a bit between 90s mountain biking and, and road cycling. It's sort of you can go out in a group, but you enjoy yourself and no one you know, is looking at the time and not many people have power meters on their gravel bike, I think. Not, I haven't seen many. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit sort of mellowed, road cycling mellowed, I suppose, and just the, the way the world's going pop, you know, with population growth and traffic and mm. things unfortunate accidents that we we've heard so much about in the last few years to get away from that traffic and, and for me on a personal level it, it's a lot like where i started mountain biking i just used to ride in the gravel roads out there in the north northern outer northern suburbs of melbourne king lake strathew and that area there and i had to, I, I imported a a, a, um, a cyclocross bike from belgium some years ago to do gravel rides and everyone what the hell is this I don't even knew what it was. There wasn't even one available in, uh, I think, in Australia back then. But um, now, now there's, this whole, there's not just bikes made for it. There's clothes and shoes and mm -hmm. and all these accessories. And I just think it's a great um, option within the different disciplines and choices of cycling for a whole, a whole new group of um, cycling participants. How would you describe your riding these days? You're obviously still riding a bunch. So, yeah, I, I ride when I can. I have two small children. So the big difference for me now in terms of uh, riding is once upon a time when I was a professional, obviously, in my life, everything was geared around my organised around my riding. Now I slip in a ride when I can. And it was yesterday, yesterday, the day before I wanted to go for a ride. It was like, uh, well, maybe if I can put the baby trailer on my road bike, it's not really a gravel bike. I can, I can go for a ride if, if I can get, if I can be home in time and ready for baby sleep time. Oh, no, I'm not ready. He's already asleep. Okay, I'll stay here. I won't ride if I'm motivated at all. Like, I suppose I could ride the rollers, but when the sun's shining outside, I'll, I'll not do that. Yeah. That's sort of my, my riding now, but I still, I probably love it more than ever riding. And just in terms of my actual riding, when I do ride, I um, 
I still ride with a purpose when I ride. And I actually, one, one thing I really, I do miss is just doing those events and some of the lower, low level races that I was doing as a non-professional, just to have a little goal and something to work for. I really, mm. really, I still enjoy that aspect of it. But my, my main thing when I ride now is I know I'm not going to be with the best climbers in the world. So I'm sort of more interested in going fast on the downhills and hence my equipment, tire choice, bike setup and everything. Yeah. But I'm still quite um, in, in my mind, still, still quite a sort of athlete mindset. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because obviously, you know, with a long career as a professional athlete, you you have to be in a certain mindset and, you know, motivation is everything and you're working towards very specific goals a lot of the time. And once you retire that, I guess that perspective changes. I mean, what is it that, do you have things that you work towards or the things you're trying to improve on or things that you like working towards or, or do you just love riding your bike? Um, oh, I love riding my bike, but I don't just go out and ride slowly. And then if I go out and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this loop and I'm going to do it in this time. Well, having two small children, it's like, well, I've got two hours free to ride. I'm going to do as much as I can in that two hours because <laughs> it's not like I'm riding every day or if I've got one hour and I'm like, well, I'm going to make that one hour count. So in that case, I'll be like, well, what loop can I do or what errand can I run while I'm on my ride? can I make it to that shop office with document to sign whatever in mm. time and make it back again or something? Um, yeah, I still ride and I ride pretty seriously, but sometimes, yeah, I just ride with friends and as a way to catch up um, mm. with people. But it's more, you know, before as a, as a professional athlete, like you're saying, you're very focused. The only thing that matters is especially now in the modern cycling is the numbers that you put out on your SRM and that they get back to the coach and the coach approves of that. And basically you'll just lay your life revolves around that. And so um, while I still look at some numbers, sometimes I don't compare them to anything that I used to do. I, I'm, I'm not on Zwift. I use Strava, but I'm not, I'm private on it, but it's just like racing myself and, and nothing more um, in terms of those um, going out on the bike with a purpose. Yeah. Do you feel like you miss the competitive, the competition, I guess, like you're obviously a very competitive person. Do you feel like you you need things to replace that or? Oh, not so much. I I thought I would, to be honest. And I thought, well, I I love motorsport as well. So if I really miss it, well, I can go and do that (laughs) at an older age, but I haven't, I haven't missed that real competitive side. And I think also, one thing in my career, I really tried to give everything, knowing that one day that the opportunity to, to be a, a top a professional was going to end and I didn't want to have any regrets when that day came. Mm. And some, and I did my last race and it was the first edition of the Great Ocean Road Race, what, uh, 2nd of February 2015. And I crossed <laughs> the finish line cramping. I was fifth in the race and I was just like, oh, you know, that's okay, let's start the next chapter. So I don't, I don't miss that competition side of things. Having said that, I'm, I'm doing a half marathon on Saturday. <laughs> Sometimes I put a number on, but <laughs> I signed up for it yesterday. So it's not like I'm going to, wow. I go into that with very, um, I should have done some more long runs before I did that. Or, well, that'll be my long run anyway. So the first <laughs> half will be training for the second half, put it that way. And so it'll be two quarter marathons anyway. Um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, so I do some running races or some bike races or something. And then if I get in a position, I'm there for the win. Yes, the daggers do sometimes come out if I've got a number <laughs> on. Big thanks to Velo Club member Fidel Evans. If you're not a Velo Club member, join. We just finished putting together our photo annual. It is gorgeous. If you join right now, you can still get it. It's pretty awesome. You might not be able to win the tour, but you can become a VC member. 
just like Cadell, just like Cadell. All right, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Cycling Tips Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>